Well, good morning. It's so wonderful to see you all. My heart rejoiced this morning as I uh, prayed for each of you, as I saw your names of you being here. And it took me quite a while to get through you all. I don't know how on earth we cope with hundreds of people. It's going to take quite an adjustment, isn't it, uh, as the place fills up again. But it's so wonderful just to see you all in person today. Now, a very good reason to have children, or at the very least to offer to babysit for other people's children, is to get the opportunity to read with them the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. The opening chapter is entitled The Story and the Song. And I would like to read this uh, opening section to you. Um, And so if you're sitting comfortably, I will begin. Now, you've got to be a certain age for that to be meaningful, but there we go. Sally begins with a paraphrase of Psalm 19. It goes like this. The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. And so she begins. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too, and he wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away. At times they are downright mean No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. 
And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day... Ah, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. Well, that's the first chapter. I mean, just buy it and read it. It's great. Well, what do you think about that emphasis of Sally Lloyd-Jones? Is the Bible essentially a love story? What do you think? Well, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3 would suggest yes. Listen to these words from the Lord God to his people through Jeremiah the prophet. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love, in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones in her little book there, is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. What a great summary of everlasting love. Here's a wonderful truth that at the center of the universe is a God of love who has made this creation in order to reveal his love and to enter into relationship with his creation into a loving relationship with us. Now, what is this love like? How can we begin to understand the nature of God's love? Well, the Bible gives us images and language to help us understand God's love for his people. The category that we're most comfortable with, I think, is probably that of a father loving his children. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so the best loving fathers are just a pale reflection of our divine Father from whom all other fathers derive their name. But the other major imagery in the Bible of love is of marital love, the love of a husband and his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he should love his wife as he loves his own body. And then Paul uh, reads from Genesis chapter 2, which we heard a little bit earlier from Amaka, and grounds it in this by this statement, a man leaves his father and mother and becomes united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Which Paul then describes as a profound mystery, for what he is referring to is the one flesh union between Christ and his church. The union of marriage between a man and a woman united as husband and wife are at best a pale reflection of our union with Christ. And the reason for this very long introduction is a way for me to explain why I think it would be very helpful for us as a whole church to be studying the Song of Songs together. 
Uh, for the first 50 years of my life, I never heard the Song of Songs preached through in a consecutive way. Uh, occasionally, in our, um, as we remembered the Lord's Supper and the breaking of bread and the assembly I grew up in, one of the older brothers would stand up and read maybe a verse or two from the Song of Songs, but never heard a whole series going through it. Now that changed back in 2018 at the Contagious Bible Conference, where the leaders of the conference decided that they would take uh, you know, 60 to 80 teenagers away for a week and teach them the Song of Songs. Now, when I first heard the idea, I thought, I'm not sure this is a very smart idea. But at the end of the week, I was rebuked and reminded afresh that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You see, this is not just a book for married people or soon-to-be-married people. Whatever your life stage at the moment, whether single or married, I believe that this is a book that can do us good as a whole church. So I'm going to try and preach uh, through it uh, over seven Sundays. And let me just share with you a few resources I found helpful. Uh, a book I would encourage you to, to get hold of is by Julian Hardiman. It's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul, Fresh Pathways to Spiritual Passion. Now, Julian pastors Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge, and uh, I just think this is a wonderful book. It got published last year, and I've been working through it in my personal devotions in the morning and being really encouraged and challenged and blessed by this. I really commend it to you. I'll be leaning on it heavily. You're going to hear bits of it. I won't deny as we go through this series. And uh, I've also been um, working through Ian Duggard's commentary in the Old Testament uh, commentary series, the Tyndale series, and also a book by Doug Donnell, Doug O'Donnell in the Preaching the Word series entitled uh, The Song of Solomon, An Invitation to Intimacy. And in that book, Doug suggests four guideposts to help us as we consider this book. And I want to use those points this morning to give four big reasons why we should study this book as a church. First reason, first guidepost, this is a song. And this helps us understand how to read it. It's not a letter. It's not a, a book of laws. It's, it's not a gospel. It's a song. And this was something that was meant to be sung by the people of Israel. Quite possibly uh, over the seven days where they used to celebrate marriage. Can you imagine? It's hard enough planning for one day. Can you imagine? You're planning seven days uh, in Israel of old. Uh, for a wedding day celebration. And quite possibly, this was a song that was sung at different times over those seven days. It's, it's not just one song, it's a series of songs. It's like an album of love songs, or it's a Spotify playlist uh, that portrays many different facets of a relationship between this uh, Shulamite country girl and a man who either is a shepherd or it begins with she mistakes him for being a shepherd and it turns out to be none other than the king, King Solomon. There's a bit of debate exactly how Solomon uh, plays out in this 
book. We don't know the exact storyline, but we learn about the initial attraction, the longings of love, the fears of love, the anxieties. We learn about the wedding day. We learn about how there can be misunderstanding and conflict in uh, this, this, this marriage, and then how they patch things up, and we get a vision of a growing, mature love relationship. And a bit like Handel's Messiah, there are lots of different parts, uh, people singing, or, or if you prefer the analogy, it's a bit like uh, the musical Grease. Uh, you, you've got bits where the man is singing, there's bits where the, women, the woman is singing, and there's bits where the friends are saying, tell me more, tell me more, you know. So it's a book like that. It's got all these different parts. We're going to hear these different voices coming in and out. And although it is very personal, and to be honest, at times embarrassingly intimate, it's interesting that this is a book sung by a community. It is a love that's rejoiced in by those around. It's a community song. For all relationships are conducted before the eyes of family and friends who are involved and celebrate their love. And because this is a love song, uh, we need to understand that poetry set to music works very differently to the sort of literature you get in, in a book of laws or a, an instruction manual. It's full of word pictures that, and alliterations. They're there to create emotion, feeling. And so we shouldn't try to woodenly work out, oh, that means that, and that means that. Um, it would be a mistake to spend time trying to work out the secret code that makes some direct correspondence with either an application to spiritual intimacy or physical intimacy. So, for example, when he says her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, do you think he's really telling her that she's got a big hooter? I don't think so. I don't think that's the point. We need to understand the poetic metaphor. And perhaps it's something like this. Um, in the same way that the Tower of Lebanon was startlingly beautiful and perfectly straight, so is her nose. She's never been in the front of a scrum with a broken nose. She's got, oh, she's got a lovely straight nose. So, yeah, that's the way poetry works. It's different. Poetry is written to evoke our imaginations. Uh, we're supposed to uh, think about the sights and the smells of things, the smell of myrrh, the touch of polished ivory, the, the taste of wine and apples, the sight of gazelles leaping over mountains. I was watching on Apple TV about these impalas and leaping. It's a glorious thing to see an impala leaping away. And this is full of this imagery, and it's supposed to be there to help you feel and imagine and experience this. So here's the first point. It's a song. And I think it's a wonderful reason for studying this book. It's a joyful celebration of life and love. And given that we've just come through a depressing year of COVID lockdown, my hope is that this is a series that will actually cause our hearts uh, to sing. It'll give us a delight and it'll turn us in thanksgiving to such a creator God who creates love like this. Second point, second guidepost. It's a song about human love. It's a song about human love set in the context of marriage. This is a wedding song. 
In chapter 3, we read about uh, a wedding day. And the word bride is used of the young woman six times in chapters 4 and 5. This is the heart of the song. And undoubtedly, it describes a sexual relationship. But it's clearly in the context of the covenant of marriage. At the end of the book, there is the language of permanent pledge. Uh, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. And there's this repeated refrain, my beloved is mine and I am his. This is about the covenant of marriage. Now, it's a book that's very positive about sex. The danger in Bible churches, particularly as we teach about this topic with teenagers, is that basically all they hear us say to them is, don't do it. And all you get is this negative, don't do it message uh, that is rightly warning about sexual immorality and adultery. And there's no doubt that sex outside the covenant of marriage is terribly destructive. The, the, uh, the promise of the sexual revolution in the 1960s really has clearly failed. Um, free love was supposed to liberate and produce joy and happiness, but the papers right now are just full of all the terrible impact of a pornographic culture of sexual abuse, of a rape culture impacting schools and colleges and universities because people have no self-control and it's causing a lot of hurt and harm. And ironically, clinical studies have shown that people are having less sex and are more dissatisfied with their sexual experiences than ever before. The sexual revolution has failed to deliver. But if the only message that we give in our churches is uh, uh, don't, then I think that would be very unhelpful. God has made us sexual beings. Experiencing sexual desire is a God-given part of our creation as men and women. And if you don't experience sexual desires from a teenager onwards, it's possibly a sign you need to go to the doctor because things aren't working as they should. And we need to remember that God came up with this idea of sexual attraction. It's, um, it's part of his good creation. The key issue is to learn how to direct your desires and learn self-control in this area of physical attraction. As Glenn Harrison, um, the retired Christian psychiatrist, has taught in a recent book, in a, in a world of dysfunctional and sinfully distorted sexual relationships, we need to cast a better vision, a better biblical vision for God's good purposes of sex. And so it's important that we do understand the beauty and blessing of sexual desire rightly ordered. And we need to talk about that as a church in this uh, society. And without doubt, this is a biblical book rightly delighting in beauty and desire and intimacy And it portrays an unabashed positive view of the place of sex within the context of marriage. And so I think in a messed up world, we can learn a lot from this book. It's a book that's candid without being crude. It's a book that, it's an erotic poem really, but it's set within the ethical limits of marriage. So secondly, this is a book about human love. Third guidepost is that it's found in the Bible. 
Uh, I think I, you know, I used to be bored growing up in church. Mum and dad just take me along, and I, ne- I used to just read my Bible because there's nothing. I was bored with what was going on, and I never forget the Sunday I came across this book. This is in the Bible. Yes, this is in the Bible. This is a song about human love in the context of marriage found in the Bible. And the Bible is ultimately about God. It reveals to us our loving creator. As Sally Lloyd-Jones has so helpfully drawn out in her Jesus Storybook Bible, and we need to understand this book in a way that it fits into the whole Bible message. So you see all the imagery in the book that's drawn from other places in the Bible, all these plants and fruits. Well, it takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And if we're uncomfortable with uh, dealing with love poetry, we have to come to terms with the fact that Adam's first words were a love poem directed to Eve from the first moment he got introduced to her on a blind date back in the garden where they were both naked and unashamed. And after this incredible creation narrative of chapter one where God spoke the whole universe into being, whole galaxies into existence, In chapter 2, we zoom into a garden on planet Earth where God places a man and a woman. And it's as if to say, in this Goldilocks universe, it's all created for this. A man and a woman united together in marriage. Uh, This is a book... The whole Bible is a book that starts with a blind date and it ends with a wedding day, as we heard from Revelation. Um, The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. The whole of creation and history is heading towards a wedding day. And the mention of Solomon puts this book in the context of the theological history of Israel. And the positive description of marriage is one that sharply contrasts with Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. So in Isaiah chapter 62, uh, the Lord takes this imagery of marital love and applies it to his relationship with Israel. It says this, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. But the great tragedy of Israel is that they spoiled the honeymoon with spiritual promiscuity and and adultery. God is the one who's had to put up with the most abusive marriage of all time. Hosea gets a taste of it as he's commanded strangely by the Lord to go and marry a promiscuous woman as a sign to Israel about what it's felt like as God has dealt with them as a nation. And after having children uh, with Hosea, Gomer, his wife, leaves him to go after other men. But amazingly, God tells Hosea to show his love to her again And he buys her back out of a life of prostitution and welcomes her home to live as husband and wife again. Why did God make us sexual beings? I mean, he could have theoretically done it a different way, couldn't he? It could have been that maybe 
you know, after 30 years, your finger drops off and it grows into another human being or something like that. He could have done it that way, but he didn't do it that way. He did it this way. I think one of the reasons that God made us sexual beings is to give us categories, to help us understand the depth of his relationship, joy and pain involved in his relationship with us. I think we can so quickly get used in the evangelical world to the phrase, God loves you. It can roll off our back. But the Lord wants us to know the intensity and the intimacy of his covenant love for his people, uh, his, the love of Christ for his church, by giving us these categories in our own experience. And this is a book that invites us to consider the depth and intensity of his love for us. And he calls on us to more actively pursue this intimacy and joy of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing about God's grace is that he doesn't allow our unfaithfulness to end the relationship. Jeremiah 31.3 goes on to say this, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. What a surprising phrase. Israel has been anything but a virgin. But I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. How is this possible? Well, it's wonderfully revealed in the New Testament, isn't it? Every part of the Bible whispers his name, Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist calls him the bridegroom. The one who comes and offers himself on the cross so that all our sins can be washed away. The one who's willing to unite himself with us like a husband with a wife so that everything that he has, his righteousness and holiness, becomes his bride's. And all of the shame of the bride, of the sin, and the, he takes it and deals with it. This is the beautiful picture of salvation. And so the Apostle Paul calls, uh, calls Jesus the one husband of the church, the one whose kingdom and consummation is like a wedding feast, as we see in lots of different parables. And so while this song is a song about human love, set in the context of marriage, we have to recognize it's found in the Bible. And the ultimate reference point has got to be Jesus. Now you can read the Chronicles of Narnia as a non-Christian and enjoy the story. But when you're a Christian and you understand that Aslan is a type of Jesus Christ, then there's a whole new depth to reading the Chronicles of Narnia. You read about this lion, but your thoughts and your heart are drawn towards Jesus Christ. And I think that's a helpful analogy, because as we read about the passion and intimacy in the Song of Songs between this man and this woman, as we fit this message into the biggest story of the Bible, then you can only read this story and your hearts and thought be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ and his great love for us, his bride, the church. And that's why I think this is a book for the whole church, for all of us, in whatever 
circumstances of life we find ourselves at the moment. Fourth guidepost is written to give us wisdom. This is a song about human love found in the Bible, written to give us wisdom. This is one of the books in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It is Solomon's Song of Songs, as it says in the very first verse of the, of the book. The English Standard Version of the Bible translates it, the Hebrew in this way, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Which could mean that the author is dedicating the book to Solomon, or that Solomon is the subject of the book, or that he's the author of the book. But Solomon's name invoked, uh, who was the king of Israel, who famously asked the Lord at the very beginning to give him wisdom and became the most wisest man upon the earth and wrote a, a thousand songs and described lots of plants and gave you know, loads of proverbs and so forth. That this is a book that out of all his songs, this is the song of songs, the best song. And this fits into the wisdom literature of Israel. Now this creates a problem for us because if you read, if you read Solomon's story, you know that his Achilles heel was his love life. His love of women, many women, foreign women who worshipped other gods and actually drew him towards their false worship. Solomon did not show wisdom in this area of his life. But instead he followed the pagan practices of, of the other nations and kings around him with a harem of wives and concubines. So what do, what do we make of this? Well, as you read this book on its own, this is a book that celebrates the love of just one man and one woman in a lifetime commitment. And so if the very first verse means that Solomon wrote this Song of Songs, Perhaps he wrote it towards the end of his life and he can reflect on the folly of and dangers of his own polygamy and he writes the, this ideal of the only wise way of conducting a relationship. This is kind of a book that says, don't follow Solomon's life. Emulate this couple, the beauty of their simple, monogamous, faithful, passionate love for each other. This is the way of wisdom. And throughout this book, a woman, uh, the woman in it, is turning to her girlfriends, possibly her bridesmaids even, and three times she gives them this wise advice. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So notice this is a book addressed to married and the unmarried. These daughters, they are uh, virgins mentioned in 1 verse 3, or the young women in 2 verse 2. It's addressed to women of marriageable age who desire marital intimacy but are still unmarried. These women are admonished to wait for sexual intimacy. While their bodies are saying yes, their instincts for intimacy are saying yes, and perhaps even some of the boys around them are trying to urge them to say yes, the wisdom message to these young women is to wait, to wait for marriage. The bride wants them to know the sexual intimacy is wonderful. 
She's enjoying the relationship. She wants them to know that. And so for that very reason, she urges the bridesmaids to wait until they are married. There's a sense in which the book of Proverbs, when it comes to sex, is a book written to young men. The word son is used over and over again. And he warns them to to not go after promiscuous women. But the Song of Songs is really teaching that's directed towards young women. And this is a message, I think, a message to married people that we continue to pursue one another with faithfulness and love. My beloved is mine and I am his. We shouldn't take this for granted. There's a wonderful mutuality in their relationship. They're compatible, they're intimate. Two are becoming one. Now, newspaper articles inform me that lockdown's not been good for couples living together. And the wisdom of the book to the married is not to allow your marriage to become cold. And here's a wise book from God that might help us. Now, these are helpful guideposts, I think, as we study this. This is a song about human love written in the Bible to give us wisdom. And my hope and prayer for all of us is that we'll all start humming this song. That we will dare to believe that we are loved by God in Christ in this passionate and intimate way. I hope that you'll come to believe and see that you are loved by God in this way so that he says this to you I have loved you with an everlasting love